Well, what a blessing to be together this morning and to worship and to pray together, to read scripture together, to observe the Lord's table. What a wonderful table the Lord has given to us as we take that table regularly here. I hope your heart has been encouraged as you reflected on what the Lord did for you to make that table possible. And so my heart's been very encouraged this morning. Well, Beth and I had the wonderful privilege for the last two weeks to be in the land where Jesus lived for his entire ministry, the land of Israel. So I have a question I'd like to ask you. How many of you have ever been to Israel? Can I see your hands if you've been to Israel? All right. Uh, Okay, there's more than I thought. Um, I love going to Israel. I think this is my 15th trip over to that part of the world, and every time I go, God does something in my heart. I tell people, when you're thinking about going to Israel, don't ever think that Israel is going to make your Bible more true. Going to Israel will not make your Bible more true. Your Bible is as true as it ever will be because your Bible is inspired. It rests on the character of the God who gave it to you. But going to Israel will help you to understand what's in your Bible. I tell people it takes your Bible from black and white to color. It takes what's on the page in a two-dimensional printed format and turns it into something that is three-dimensional. And so every year I go, there, there's usually something that God brings out of that and that grabs my attention and, uh, and that becomes really something that, that just I sort of ruminate over, think about for the entire trip. This year, our guide was probably the best guide I've ever had on a trip like the study tour that we took to Israel. He had been a student at Moody Bible Institute and had worked his way through that program and had a degree in theology, so he knew all of... The, the biblical understanding of what we were seeing. He then moved to Israel, married an Israeli, became uh, a citizen of the country, and got a master's in Israeli studies from the Hebrew University there. So he knew all of that side. And so as we were going through the land, he kept saying a phrase that got my attention. He kept talking about, The greatest story ever told is the story of who? It's the story of Jesus. The greatest story ever told. And he contrasted that for the entire trip with another great story. He called it the greatest story never told. And it was about another king who had come into that same kingdom and had established himself in that kingdom and had built... Uh, great things in that kingdom. In fact, this king was probably the greatest builder that Israel ever had with the exception of Solomon. And that's making a massive statement. And this king is who? Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Herod the Great. Now when you read your Bible, you know Herod uh, as the king who was living just before Jesus came, and he was the one who, when the wise men came from the east, looking for someone who was a born king of the Jews, not just a made king of the Jews, that Herod immediately began a series of conversations with these men in an attempt to find who this born king was. And the writers of the Gospels intentionally describe a horrific thing that Herod did to kind of get you to think about how God is positioning Herod in the Scriptures. You remember that when the wise men went to find Jesus and worship, they were warned in a dream not to go back to tell Herod what they had discovered. And when Herod found out that they had left without coming back to tell him what he wanted to know, he decided to solve the problem by slaying every infant 
that had been born in his kingdom that was two years old or younger. And that slaughter of the infants was a horrific thing that Herod did. Now, Herod was not the first king in your Bible to do this. Can you think of another king in the Old Testament who took Hebrew babies who were born and slaughtered them? You have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 2. And you read about another king named Pharaoh. And he was the arch enemy of God. He was the arch enemy of Moses. And that when you read your Bible, that is what the writers of Scripture want you to connect. You have a, a man who has done an amazing thing in the land of Israel. But when God looks at this man, he wants you to connect him with the arch enemy of God and with the arch enemy of God's people, Pharaoh. So as we were going through the land, we went to all or many of the places where Herod had left his imprint. Herod had created in the land of Israel a section in different places of the land where he had built in Israel replicas of what you would find at Rome. So, for example, our very first stop was at a city named Caesarea by the sea. Now, you know about Caesarea in your Bible. A lot of very important things happened in Caesarea. One of the main things that happened in Caesarea was that the Apostle Paul ended up there in jail for two years before he went to Rome. Caesarea, if you think about that name, right in the name Caesarea is the name Caesar. This was a city that Herod built. It was a massive city. And he named it after the Caesar of Rome that had given him the power to rule over the land of Israel. And it was a magnificent city. It had a Roman amphitheater in it. It had a theater in it. It had a a, a hippodrome where you could see all the chariot races. Everything that you could find in Rome, you could find in Caesarea. If you went up to the north part of the city, he built a huge city there that became ultimately the capital of that part of the world or in the land. And so all throughout Israel, Herod began to bring the culture of Rome into the land of Israel. And so as you come into the story of the New Testament, you have these two competing worldviews that are at, at odds with each other in this land that God had promised to give to His people. You have Herod and what he's bringing in, and then you have the Jews who literally looked at all of that and basically saw that as a foreign influence that God had told them to stay away from. And so there was a great conflict between these two ideologies. And out of that came the gospel. Out of that came Jesus. Out of that came the gospel. And out of that came the very first Christians. And I say all of that to you because I want you to see that the text we're looking at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5 is coming out of that framework. There are people who are living right in the middle of two competing worldviews. And as they have their life and they do their life and as they are sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ into that world and into the entire Roman Empire, they are actually living out values from a completely different kingdom. There is the kingdom of Herod, there is the kingdom of Rome, and then there is the kingdom of God. And here are people who have to go into all the little kingdoms of the world, and we talked about this when we were reading the book of James and studying through what James had to say to the early believers as they went into all those little kingdoms And if you lived in Jesus' day and you looked at those little kingdoms, they didn't look very little. They actually looked magnificent. They actually looked incredibly glorious and wonderful and they had all kinds of things available to the people that lived in there. But as you go into the text of the New Testament, you find out that in all of those little kingdoms of the world, there was a new kingdom that had come And there were people who had been commissioned 
to be ambassadors of that kingdom in all the little kingdoms. Even the ones like the one that Herod had introduced into the very land of Israel. So as we come to 1 Peter, Peter's going to talk to those people and he's going to explain to them how they are to navigate those kingdoms when those kingdoms turn against them. How do you navigate life when the kingdoms of the world turn against the kingdom that you represent? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus first introduced this kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, He introduced this kingdom by talking about the kingdom being flavored by two things. It was going to be a kingdom that was flavored by righteousness and a kingdom that was marked by peace. And everybody that lived in that kingdom, everybody that entered into that kingdom and that was going to be a citizen of that kingdom would be marked by certain qualities. For example, they would be humble in spirit. They would be full of meekness. They would be intensely interested in shalom, in peace. They would be pure of heart. And we call these qualities that Jesus lays out at the very front end of the sermon, the Beatitudes. Now think about this for a minute. If you lived in ancient Israel and you had these two kingdoms that were sort of competing with each other and somebody comes along and says, I'm going to introduce a kingdom that doesn't come from any of these kingdoms at all. It is a kingdom that comes from heaven. Heaven is the one establishing this kingdom and everybody in the kingdom that I'm talking about is going to be marked by righteousness and flavored by shalom, and their life is going to be an an exhibition of the kinds of things that any good kingdom would want in the lives of their citizens. I mean, what do you think would happen, for example, in our own country, if everybody here was truly humble? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a country where everybody was truly humble, poor in spirit? Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a, in a kingdom where everybody was gracious and meek and gentle? I mean, just go through the Beatitudes and ask yourself what it would be like to really be around people like that. And you would almost say it this way. If it, it, literally, that would almost be like, like heaven on earth, wouldn't it? So it almost comes as a surprise at the end of that when Jesus looks at all of those people and he says, now let me tell you what's going to happen to you when you live this way and you're kind and you're gracious and you're meek and you're humble and you're lowly and you live righteously on the earth, you are going to be ruthlessly persecuted. You are going to be relentlessly resisted and ridiculed. You you are going to have diminished standing in this world. You are going to have the destruction of your property. You're going to see damage to your reputation. And some of you are even going to have death come into your life as a result of this. Now that is completely not what I was expecting. And so Jesus himself lives all of this out. He ascends to heaven. And then he commissions 11 men to take this message to the world. And they do. And as they begin to take this message to the world, the message begins to produce an immense harvest in all the kingdoms of the world. And you and I are actually part of that harvest 2,000 plus years later. And so the text that I've drawn our attention to in 1 Peter chapter 5 is a text that is as relevant for us this morning as it was in the day that Peter wrote it. Because Peter himself is writing to to readers like us who have been called to live for the kingdom from above in all of the kingdoms of the world. In all of the kingdoms where Herods, all kinds of Herods exist in the world, had established a kingdom that they were willing to defend at all costs. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, now now the gates of those kingdoms, 
will not stand against the advance of the kingdom that I'm commissioning you to advance in the world. And so let's read together, beginning in chapter 4, verse 19, and then I want us to read through chapter 5, verse 8. Therefore, Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So immediately we're in the context that I just described for you. As I was going through uh, the land of Israel, this verse was a verse that kept coming back to me as I began listening to these two competing stories. The story of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and the story of the kingdom that Herod and his descendants were determined to defend at all costs. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then he starts talking to the leaders of the churches that these believers would be a part of. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is coming, that is going to be revealed. And here's my exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he's going to tell people like, those of us who shepherd here, how to do it. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so he's introduced this context of suffering, and then he turns to the leaders that God has appointed to shepherd and serve the church. And he says, now here's how I want you to navigate this. And then he turns the other direction, and he talks to the church at large. And he says in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, in other words, you who are under the leadership of these shepherds, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, including the elders, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And I want to stop there for just a minute. And I want to make a connection. Here's what Jesus is saying to all of the ambassadors of the kingdom that has come down from heaven that is now going among all the kingdoms of the world, God says to them, you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God arrays Himself against the proud. He lines up in opposition against the proud. But He gives grace. He gives enablement to the humble. And you know what? You and I need God's enablement if we're going to navigate life in a world like the one we're in successfully. We're going to need God's enablement. And God says, I give that enablement to people who are humble. So therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He may elevate you. Alright, did you catch that? So here's my question. In this text, how do I humble myself? There is a particular way that Peter has in mind, that he has laid out for us in the verses that come to help us understand how to humble ourselves in this circumstance. I mean, here I am, and I'm living in the middle of Herod's kingdom. And I have been selected by God, I've been commissioned by God to represent a competing kingdom. And things are going to happen to me as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven because I am invading Herod's kingdom. And if I'm going to navigate that well, if I'm going to survive that well, I am going to need God's grace. I'm going to need God's enablement. And if we were putting that in our language today, if we were bringing all of this, if Peter were standing up here today, he would say, just like God's people had to go and live in the kingdom of Rome or in the kingdom of Herod, you have to live in the kingdom of the world where God has placed you. 
And you are going to suffer in that kingdom. You you are going to find a deep-seated resistance against who you are and what you represent. And that deep-seated resistance is going to at times be relentless and ruthless in its application. And you are going to need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So here I am this morning, here you are this morning, and I want to know, how do I do that? How do I actually humble myself under the mighty hand of God? And in this text, verse 7 is the answer to that question. When Peter says, I want you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he isn't just making a very general statement here. He's actually got a very specific way in which he wants that humility to manifest itself. And this is what it looks like, casting all of your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. If, if you really want to humble yourself in the way that Peter is talking about here, there is a very specific aspect that he's pulling front and center, and it's the aspect that as you encounter all of the things that produce pressure in your life, as you go through all of the persecution or all of the things that, that are coming at you, there is a response that God is looking for, and it's in verse 7. You are to cast your cares on Him. Because He cares for you. And so what I want to do this morning briefly is I want to unpack that verse for you. I want to unpack verse 7. Because if we can understand verse 7, I think it becomes a major way in which our life is transformed internally so that we can have the kind of impact that Peter was talking about to the readers that were first reading his letter many, many centuries ago. And so I want you to notice uh, some things about this verse. First of all, Peter is going to talk about a reality that comes into the life of every believer that's representing the kingdom of heaven in the kingdoms of the world. There is a reality. And the reality is is this. It's wrapped up in the word cares. Peter says, I want you to take your cares and I want you to cast them on him. And so think about that word care. That word care, if we had a different word for it, it would be the word anxiety. Something that makes you anxious. That same word is used in extra biblical literature to describe the surface of a lake. In the land of Israel, there is one massive lake. It's the single largest body of fresh water in the country. And I've had the opportunity and All of you who've been to Israel have had the opportunity to be on that lake. You know that lake is the lake or the Sea of Galilee. It's where Peter and James and the disciples fished. Jesus did most of his ministry or the great bulk of his ministry on the shores of that lake. And there are times when I've been in Israel and I've looked out the hotel window and I've looked at that lake and it is calm. It's so calm it's almost like glass. There's no stirring, there's no wind, and that lake is calm. When we were on the lake this time, uh, the lake wasn't calm. Now, it wasn't like massively, like the waves weren't just billowing over the boat, but it was a very, very choppy sea. The, 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 the waves, the wind was just stirring up the waves, and, the, and, and nobody would look at that lake and say that it was calm. And so the word that Peter uses for cares would describe the surface of a lake that is choppy. And sometimes your soul is like that about things that are going on in your life. Sometimes that word was used to describe a garment in the New Testament. Having a nice garment was a very, very uh, wonderful luxury. Most people only had one garment that they wore and Sometimes uh, they would have the opportunity to purchase a second garment, and sometimes you would take that garment and you would care for that garment carefully. Think about taking a a piece of cloth that would make a very nice garment, and, and people start pulling on it, and that garment is being pulled in all kinds of different directions, and the pressure on the threads of that garment are so great that they start to pull apart. They start to separate. And sometimes you're going to have that in your life. 
Now I want you to notice something. Peter says this is something that is happening in the will of God. This is not happening to the people that he's writing to because they're sinning. They are in the perfect will of God, and as they are in that perfect will of God, there are things that come into their life according to the plan of God, for the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel in ways that perhaps were not immediately obvious to the person that produced this kind of anxiety in their life. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. When he uses that word anxious, he says, do not be anxious about the material things that you need to stay alive. Like food and clothing and shelter. Don't be anxious about the material things in life. Isn't that a place where anxiety often comes in our life? Beth and I have been married long enough, and many of you as well, that you have children. How many of you have children? Can I see your hands? Yeah? You know, when those little babies come home from the hospital, they are so precious, aren't they? You can't believe that God has entrusted this beautiful life into your care. And then quickly you discover they didn't come with an instruction manual. And you've got to figure it out. And then they start getting older, and particularly at stages in their life, they start costing you money. Did you know this? Many of you don't have children yet. You're in for a very pleasant surprise. And one of the things that you're going to discover is that when they get in their teen years, they want stuff. I think I spent a small fortune on basketball shoes for my son. Because he was convinced that if he could just get the right basketball shoe, he could jump higher, his shot would be better. I mean, it was, and I looked, I said, son, take a look at me. These are your genes. You don't have a future in the NBA. I don't care how many thousands of dollars we invest in shoes, it isn't going to change your reality. And yet, we invested those dollars. And so, you know, typically, you know, I don't know how it works in your house, but you have month and you have money. You know what I'm talking about? And the trick is, you want there to, at the end of the month, you want there to be money left over. It gets very stressful if you run out of money and there's more month. And it creates anxiety. And so Jesus is talking about the material cares of life. If you go to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul starts talking about the relational cares. Sometimes it's not just trying to figure out how I'm going to get food and clothing and shelter for myself and for my family. Sometimes it's the relationships in my life that are at stake that are going to produce this anxiety. How many times have you had a friend who's called you and said, hey, would you, would you just pray for me? I'm, I'm going through an incredible trial and there's something going on in a relationship in my life. Maybe it's a marriage that's dissolving. Maybe there's a child that's made a decision that, that you would have given everything you own for that child not to have made. And your heart is breaking because of the relational pressure that is coming into your life. Sometimes the relational pressure doesn't come because other people are making wrong decisions. Sometimes relational pressure comes into your life because it's part of what God has for you as you care for people in your life. But there's relational pressure that comes into your life. And then there is the care that is associated with the ministry that God has entrusted to you as a Christian. Paul said, I, I want you to know that as I navigate, he was telling the Corinthians this in the second letter he wrote to them, as I navigate my life uh, beyond all the physical suffering that I've endured, beyond all of that is the care, the weight, the burden of the churches. And if that weren't enough, if the material side of life and the relational side of life, and the ministry side of life were not enough. Sometimes God introduces a care that touches your own personal life that you never saw coming. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about a thorn that he had. And it was a thorn that afflicted him in a horrible way. And three times the Apostle Paul besought the Lord. You remember this story? 
that he tells the Corinthians? I besought the Lord three times that he would remove that scenario from my life and God left it there so that I would know that his grace was sufficient for my weakness. And there's not a one of us in here, isn't there? who's not at some point faced up to the reality that Peter is talking about. Peter says to these dear readers who are living for the kingdom of God in all the kingdoms of the world, there is a reality that is coming into your life. And it's not coming because God is displeased with you. It is not coming because you in some way have walked away from God. This reality is coming because you are in the will of God. And the reality is care. Which brings me to the second thing that I want you to notice about the verse. What is the response that Peter calls for when he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? What is the response that humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what does the response look like when we encounter those kinds of cares? And Peter says, well, here's what you do. You need to cast those cares on him. You need to cast those cares on Him. When you are being torn apart internally, where your soul is being stretched to the point that you feel like it's coming apart at the seams and you don't know what to do, Peter says to you, here is how you respond to that. Cast your care on Him. When you are being torn apart by the relational pressures that are in your life. You never thought marriage was going to go this way. You never thought raising kids was going to result in this kind of soul pain and soul agony. You never felt like the relationships that got brought into your life were going to bring this kind of pressure. And yet here you are, and to the very best of your ability, you're not where you are because you displease the Lord. You're where you are because this is what God has for you. And Peter would say to you, you need to cast all of that anxiety, you need to cast all of that care on Him. Maybe there's ministry pressure going on in your life right now. Maybe maybe your soul is like that lake and it's just churning inside because there's stuff happening in the ministry venue where God has placed you and you know you're supposed to be there. You know that this is what God has for you, but it's churning and God says to you, listen, through Peter he would say to you, cast all of that on the Lord. So here's my question. How do you do that? So I want to put the sermon on pause for a minute. Can we push a little pause button? And I'm going to step away from the sermon, and I just want to talk for a minute. And I want to ask you, so, so let's say I'm a brand new Christian, and I showed up at Palmetto today, and I'm listening to this sermon. And there's stuff going on in my life that is exactly what we've talked about. Man, there's stuff going on in my marriage. There's stuff going on in my work. There's stuff going on everywhere I look. And I'm sitting here, and it's the very first time I've ever heard this, And all of a sudden, my heart is arrested by the idea that I can take all of this weight, all of this pressure, and I can cast it on the Lord. The word cast means to roll, or to hand off, or to toss over to somebody. Peter says, take all of this and deliver it over to the Lord. Cast it over the Lord. And I am eager to do that. Because I've never heard this before. Remember, this is the first time I've come. And so after the sermon is over, um, I get up, I'm sitting in the back, and I make a beeline to the front, and, and the pastor is gone. He just disappeared. And I look around, and, and all the other leaders that were up there are either talking to other people or busy, and so I come to you. I land right next to you, and I sort of tug on your arm, And I introduce myself and I say, listen, I'm brand new here. I'm a brand new believer. I've got all this stuff going on in my life. What that guy was talking about up there is me. And I want to know how to do that casting bit. What would you say? You might say what? Well, you just, you know, you just tell the Lord. Just tell it to Jesus. 
Or you might just say, you, you just need to pray about it. You, you could even say, you know, like write it down on a piece of paper and bring it up to the altar and leave it there. But at the end of the day, I want to know about this casting bit because that seems to me to be the answer to all the pressure that is going on in my life. And, and so at the end of the day, I think if I were talking to all of you at different places, I would get some version of this. You need to tell it to Jesus. You need to pray about it. And at that point, I'm going to walk away from you. I might not say it to you, but I'm going to walk away from you just shaking my head going, are you kidding me? I mean, I came to church today and I heard this thing that the pastor was talking about that seems to be the very answer that I've been looking for and all you can do is tell me to pray about it? What do you think I've been doing? I've been praying about it. I prayed about this for months. I talk to God about this all the time. I, 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 I remind Him that this is a mess and I can't fix it. I got this bill coming and it's due and I keep talking to God. This would be a really good time for you to show up in my mailbox with some extra cash. I, I just got back from the hospital and, and I got this report and I didn't know what to do with it. And I talked to God and I'm like bargaining with Him and pleading with Him and asking Him. I spend all of my time praying and it's not helping. It's just not helping. So how do we actually do what Peter says? All right, does that make sense to you? Okay, we're not in the sermon yet. Remember I got the pause button? We're just talking here. So does this make sense? Have you been there? I know I've been there. I've been here with all of the different pressures and all of the things, and sometimes I've got pressure coming from more than one place. And so this casting bit is really important. How do I actually do that? Well, I'm going to hit play and we're going to go back to the sermon and we're going to find out that Peter had a friend named Paul. And I want you to keep your finger here in 1 Peter and I want you to go over to the book of Philippians in your Bible. And in the book of Philippians chapter 4, Paul is going to say a very similar thing to his readers that Peter was saying to his readers. Remember what Peter said? Hey, when you've got anxiety, when you've got this pressure, when the lake of your soul is churning, when the threads of your inner being are coming apart, you take all of that anxiety, all of that pressure, and you cast it to the Lord. Well, Paul's going to say the same thing, but he's going to say it a little bit differently. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about everything. Do not be anxious about everything. The word anxious there is the word cares that Peter used in our text this morning. Paul is saying, now listen, when when you run into what Peter was talking about, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, that's what I'm after, right? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will garrison your heart. It will guard your heart. It'll be like that band that comes around the heart that is about to fall apart and just holds it all together. It will garrison your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So you were right. Remember when I came to you and I said, listen, I just heard this sermon. It's exactly where I'm living. I need to do that thing that Pastor Sam was talking about. I need to cast my care on the Lord and I don't know how to do it. And you said back to me in a very helpful way, just tell it to Jesus. Just pray. And I said in my heart, well, I've been doing that and it's not working. And if we're truthful, we've all kind of had that. And so what Paul does in Philippians 4 is he affirms that you were right when you identify the casting your care on him as prayer. And he uses three words for prayer 
in this text. Let me show them to you. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, and down toward the end of the verse, requests. There are three different words that Paul uses to talk about prayer. So by the time you get done with this verse and you read Peter, you really do understand that that casting our care on Him, we do that through prayer. And when we do that, Paul says, now the peace of God will garrison your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so here's my question to Paul. I had a question to Peter. Now I have a question to Paul. So Paul, I'm doing that. I am doing that. I am praying. I'm letting my specific requests come before the Lord. I am praying with intensity. I am praying in faith. And and there is no peace that is garrisoning my heart. I go to bed at night and I wake up at 3 in the morning and my mind will not turn off because I can't seem to get this problem out of my mind. This relationship, this pressure, this this need that is overwhelming my life and my family. I have no peace. I don't have what Paul is talking about, but I'm doing all the things that Paul said to do. I'm praying. I'm letting my request be made known to the Lord. And at that point, somebody would say, well, Pastor, you left something out of the verse. Do you remember what I left out of the verse? Look back at verse 6. Do not be anxious about everything, about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. What did I leave out? With what? Thanksgiving. And the minute, the minute you say that to me, it's like all the air goes out of my balloon. You know, it's like, Pastor, I've been praying. I've been letting my requests be made known to God. And, um, and I'm supposed to do it with Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden, all the air goes out of my balloon. And here's why. I've been a Christian long enough, and so have most of you, that I know how to make thankful things come out of here when I need them to come out of here. Right? You know, so maybe I'm with uh, one of the past, maybe, maybe Pastor Ben and I are driving somewhere and, and we're going to go, you know, have a, a coffee meeting and, I'm, I'm, and we're in the car talking and then boom! And, and I look over there and there's my pieces of my tire just rolling down the highway. You know what I do when Pastor Ben's with me? Well, praise the Lord, Brother Ben. God is so good all the time, isn't he? He's probably sparing us some huge accident that's happening about two miles up the road. Praise the Lord for this flat tire. Amen. Or, you know, maybe I'm with, uh, you know, somebody, a student that I'm teaching and something happens. I'm like, praise the Lord. This is good. This is for, you know, all things work together for what? For good. You know, the problem is I can make thankful words come out of here, but what I don't know how to do is make thankful thoughts come out of here. And the Bible says God looks where? On the heart. So the real issue for me is not making thankful sounds come out of my mouth. It's actually having thankfulness rise up in my heart. So how in the world am I supposed to do this? Peter, you've told me about the reality. You and Paul got together to talk to me about the response, casting all your cares, and Paul actually gave me the key piece Thanksgiving, and now I don't know how to do that. And Peter says, well, I have one more thing I want to share with you, and that is what will bring the thankfulness to the table. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. And let's just remind ourselves, Peter's writing to people living under pressure, and the first thing he says is there's a reality that you need to be aware of. Don't be surprised by this. And, and later on in verse 8 and 9, he's going to tell you where all of this is ultimately coming from. There is a raging, roaring enemy. He's like a lion seeking to devour you, and he's going to do everything he can to destroy you. So a lot of this pressure is coming because you are invading his kingdom. 
And Peter says, now when that happens, here's the response. Cast your care on Him. So there's a reality and there's a response. And Paul says, yeah, and by the way, the reason it's not working for you is because you're saying all the prayer things right, but you don't have thankfulness in your heart. So my big question is, how do I get thankfulness in my heart? And, and Peter says, well, let me give you the final thing. Cast all of your cares on Him because. And what's the because? He cares for you. Look at that word that Peter uses at the end of verse 7. Do you see the he cares? It's the same word that he uses at the front end of the the verse to talk about your cares. You have cares that you're constantly thinking about. You can never turn them off. When you go to bed at night and everything is silent, your soul is not resting Your mind is not resting because these cares are constantly coming up before you. And and Peter says, now in the same way that those things are happening to you, there is something that is always on God's mind. Just like there's something that's always on your mind that you're concerned about, there's something that's always on God's mind that He's concerned about, and it's you. He is always thinking about you. He is always concerned about what concerns you. So you can cast your care on Him because He cares for you. Now, I want to bring all of this to bear with a story that I think brings all of this home. Because if the truth be told, the things we've been talking about this morning are not new to any of you. You, you, This is not a surprise to you that when you have pressure like this, you would expect somebody like me or Peter, I'm not saying I'm Peter or Paul, but you would expect the elders of your church to follow what the elders of the first church did when they were talking to people under pressure. You would expect us to say, cast all of that on the Lord through prayer. And the reason that we can do it with confidence is because He cares for us. And so the question is, how does this last thing, God caring for us, produce thankfulness in your heart? So I want to end with a story, and then we're going to pray together. All right? It's a hypothetical story. You know what a hypothetical story is? I always want to say this because I've had people come back to me and say, now, Pastor, did that really happen? It's hypothetical, which means it could have happened. It didn't, but it could have happened. So I want to be upfront with you. This is a hypothetical story. Are we ready for a hypothetical story? All right, in my ministry over the years that the Lord has allowed Beth and I to be in ministry together, frequently my ministry has involved travel. And so that means you have to get on a plane and go somewhere. And I am, by nature, a person who is filled with anxieties. I'm always worried about something. My wife constantly reminds me, stop worrying. You're going to kill yourself with worry. I think, you know, in my family, God appoints a chief warrior, and I'm it. And the rest of the people in my family are the reason for the worry, except for my wife, right? So I had to to say that just to kind of keep my marriage where it needs to be. But, But I'm the warrior in my family. So, like, when I'm getting ready to go on a trip, I am anxious because, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that packs the night before. And I get, a, I get it everything just right. And then I set an alarm because I got to get up in the morning. I got to set an alarm. And then I set a backup alarm just in case the first alarm doesn't go off. Am I the only one that does that? And so let's just hypothetically say I've got a trip and I've got to get to the airport. And I pack, and I set my alarm, and I set my backup alarm. And for whatever reason, I had good cause for worry because my alarm didn't go off, and I slept through my backup alarm. And when I get up, I realize I am in massive time trouble. So I rip through the shower, I get my clothes on, I grab my stuff, I kiss my wife who's sleeping in the bed next to me, and I rush out to the car, I throw my stuff in the car, and I I start up the car, and I ram it in reverse to get out of the driveway, and I look down, and the little gas line is where? On empty. Now, I didn't 
drive that car on empty because I don't believe... You know, some people have a philosophy of gas in their car. You just have a little bit because if the rapture comes, you don't want the Antichrist to have use of your gas. I'm the opposite. I want that to be on the full as much as possible. So I look down, and the person who drove this car last is sleeping in my bed. And I'm like, Lord, you made her. I don't understand this. This makes zero sense to me. Now i got to go find a gas station. And I'm praying all the way, Lord, what is going on? How how many times have I said, put gas in the car? Because you might have an emergency. And here I am in the middle of one. And I find a gas station, fill up the car, and I get on the highway to the airport, and I get behind a glorious person who can't figure out if they're driving or parking. You ever been there? You're trying to get around them, and you can't. And then then you finally get to the airport, and you park somewhere, and you got to, you know grab your stuff and you're flying into the airport and you get in the line that you think is the shortest and it's not. Some person wants to know everything about the aircraft. When was the last time it was service? I'm like, sir, this aircraft is going to get you. Could you please just get your... I can't say that out loud, but I'm thinking, oh, I'm smiling, you know, because Jesus loves you. Maybe he doesn't really love you yet. I get my ticket and I go through the counter, the line, you know, where you get checked and I get pulled over, you know, here are people just buzzing through. They got all kinds of stuff. And here's a little old me on Jesus' mission to take God's Word where I'm supposed to go. And I go through, boop, and I get pulled over. They take everything out of my bag. I got to have two checks. And by the time I get all my stuff packed back in, I'm in real time trouble. And I run down to the gate, and the door is closed. And I come up to the counter and I'm out of breath. I'm like, ma'am, I'm the servant of Yahweh. And I am on a mission and I have got to get on that. I've got to get on that plane. And she looks at me and she says, sir, the door is closed. Now at that point, you have several options. I'm not saying I know this from experience, but trust me, an option that doesn't work is looking at her and say, well, open it. If you closed it, Unless you're Noah, it can open. That doesn't work. And the saddest, most frustrating thing is looking out the window at the plane that's slowly backing away from that little tube that comes out that you walk down and you're like, you know, if they would just open the two doors, I think I could jump. I think I could make it. And off the plane goes. And, you're, and now, now you've got to sit there and it's six hours before you get on the next flight. And you, I mean, stomping around in an airport actually does help a little bit. So you're stomping around, and you go over, and you sit down, and you get a cup of coffee, and you're just stewing in all the, God, what in the world's going on? And then all of a sudden, the airport goes deathly quiet. And all of the screens start showing the same thing. And they show a plane flying into a tower. And when you saw that plane going to the tower, you instinctively knew nobody made it out alive. And as details come out, you realize as you pull out your ticket that you had a seat on that plane. What starts to come out of here? Lord, thank you for a wonderful wife who takes care of our family, who does all of the things that she does and just didn't have time to put gas in the car. Thank you for that person who's driving in front of me that couldn't figure out what to do. Thank you for letting me be pulled. All of a sudden, all the things that five minutes ago you were so exerted about are now occasions for gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you know what? You're not even having to tell yourself to do this. It's automatically coming out. You know why? Because God just showed you the end from the beginning. And at that point, God would be well within his rights to look at me and say, are you kidding me? You do this all the time. Why do you always make me show you the end before you're thankful? Why can't you just be thankful 
in the middle of it because you know I'm going to do something good at the end. When have I never, ever not done good at the end? I mean, I gave you a whole Bible full of about 4,000 years of human history where I constantly do this over and over and over. And that's why you can be thankful here. You don't have to wait to hear to get there. And by the way, folks, that's a valid question, isn't it? The reason I'm not thankful is because I actually don't trust God with the end. And God is constantly saying to us through His Word, I know the end from the beginning. I am constantly using all the circumstances that go on around you to do things in you so that I can work through you for a much bigger picture than what you may have in mind. And that's why Peter looked at you and he looked at me and he looked at those first readers and he says, now cast all of that on the Lord. And Paul says, when you do and you pray, pray with a thankful heart because you know that the God who is orchestrating all of this, when you see the whole picture, you are going to go, that was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for what you did. I wonder if you would take just a minute to bow your head as we close this morning. You know, in a church like ours, there are people who are facing unbearable pressures. God has put you right in the middle of a strategic moment, and in that moment, there is the pressure that is coming from all corners of your life. It may be that you look at your life and there's not sufficient resources that you can yet see to even live life. Maybe there are relational pressures that God intends to use in some great way for His glory. Who would have ever thought that five of His choice servants would travel down a river and meet their end at the end of a spear? And through that ignite a whole generation of mission-minded gospel risk-takers. And I don't know what God is going to do through you. I don't know what the cancer that has come into your life is going to do for God's glory. I don't know what the pressure or whatever it is that you're facing. I don't know, but God knows. And when you get to the end of the process and you look back, You'll look at God and say, God, I didn't understand it then, but it this was brilliant. This was brilliant. Thank you. And I wonder this morning if maybe we couldn't just take a moment and say, God, I don't, I don't know what the end of this is going to be. I don't know what's coming. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what you are doing in this. But I do want to thank you because I trust you. I trust you. I have a trustworthy Bible that tells your story all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And all along, you have done good things at the end for your people. And so by faith, this morning, I want to take a step, a small step, and I want to take all of my anxiety, I want to take all of this pressure that is bearing down on me, and I want to give it to you, and I want to give it to you with thankfulness, because I know at the end, when I finally see what you're up to, I will be glad. As I pray here in just a moment, would you join me? Would you pray with me in your heart? Can we pray together to the God who does all things well? Lord, we do come, and we take this little text that has been sitting in our New Testament the entire time, And the connection that Peter and Paul make together to cause us to think about why it is so hard to be thankful in the midst of pressure. And the reality is we just don't see the end like you do. And so it does take faith. It does take trust. It does take willingness to come before you and humble ourselves and not try to solve things ourselves but to just come before you and say to you humbly, Father, I accept this from you and I'm thankful that you're in charge.
You've made promises to me that you will provide for me and care for me and walk with me even if it means walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You will be with me. And when I get to the other side of wherever this is going and I look back, I will see what you said all along, that you are faithful, you are true, and you do all things well. And so I want to thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.